You are listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Hello, welcome to episode 29 of Sounds Like Science. We've managed to do another one, Simon. I know, after a brief, well, not so brief, Christmas hiatus and New Year's, (laughs) we're back with some uh, hopefully interesting science and I could put another doomy gloom kind of uh, slant on (laughs) the past couple of weeks' science. Yeah, we're going to have to find something more uplifting to talk about. There's going to be some, I don't know, cats playing with printers or something that, that uh, have, have some sort of scientific merit <laughs> oh there are, there is some good news in here so hopefully yeah i i, I can uh, turn it i can get rid of the january blues somewhat what do you want to tell me about them well i think i'll start with the the aliens as i always like to because there's been i don't it's been this has been a story that's been rumbling on there's a couple of things actually but there was a cigar shaped object that passed through the solar system recently that sadly didn't turn out to be uh, some sort of invading alien race mm-hmm. and uh, there's this being if people might want to google it there's a story rumbling on something called tabby's star and uh, that it's basically the, the 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 brightness the luminosity you know basically the light coming from it is dipping sort of semi-regular semi-regular and basically so if it was regular they would say well that could be a planet it's not behaving how we should and people were saying it could be an alien civilization and some people were stating that something called a Dyson sphere might have been built around it and this is something that basically is like a a large object like solar panels basically you build around Mm. a star and a very advanced civilization would be used to, to kind of capture all the energy and it'd be very efficient and uh, because that might be a way of explaining it. And uh, me being miserable, I've always said that I don't think so, that a natural explanation. <laughs> and uh, it turns out it's just a very large, irregular cloud of dust orbiting around the star, which is a shame. But um, as I say, I think it, as with all these things, just because it's not aliens, we're learning things. This is still yeah. something fascinating. It's still something we've never seen before. And there's also something about these, uh, along the same line, people are now looking at mysterious radio bursts that could be coming from a point in the star. We've seen these before, though, with um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell discovered pulsars, wasn't it? Oh. They're just neutron stars. So, again, I, but, um, you know, people are saying this is possible alien signals. Uh, I, I often wonder if it's just a great way of getting funding but, um, <laughs> or, or a new microwave oven. As I've pointed out, I may be in the past in Australia where they were searching for a a bizarre uh, radio signal for something like 20 years and turned out it was the the microwave oven on site that was being used at regular hours. (laughs) Uh, So, um, yes, uh, as I say, while it's not aliens, I'm actually quite glad of that because I think the last thing this planet needs at the moment is an invading alien force to really we're, we're doing quite well on our own but um you know we're learning we're learning about the universe and all these things just you know kind of add to our knowledge base so i find it fascinating mm. so there's a meeting going on at the moment the 231st american astronomical society meeting and they've been talking about these fast radio bursts there um no one's really known what they are they're, they're short-lived um Mm. And there was, they know that one source was sending out repeated flashes. 
And now the research has just been presented at this meeting which says uh, a team has said that the emission may be caused by a dead star located in a very powerful magnetic environment. Uh, so this has been a paper in Nature apparently. So they, these researchers have looked at the, the polarisation of the radio waves, so that's which way they, they wiggle in space, and it shows how they vibrate. And as they pass through a regional magnetic field, they get twisted. Well, it's a, mm. an effect known as Faraday rotation. It's something that um, we're quite interested in because it might tell us something about the solar wind in the research area that I work in. Of course, yeah. But the stronger the magnetic field, the greater the twisting. These researchers say, um, uh, this is uh, Daniel Michili, I hope I pronounced that correctly. The only source in the Milky Way that are twisted as much as the, uh, this, this fast radio burst, uh, 121102 it's called, uh, are in the galactic <laughs> centre, which is a dynamic region near a massive black hole. Maybe the fast radio burst is in a similar environment to this host galaxy. Yeah, oh, but anyway, it's interesting that, 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 that there are, the, the thing about the, the astronomy and uh, the, the universe in general is that you can create environments. You know, there are environments out there in the universe that are far beyond anything that we could create mm. on Earth. And so, when we see something peculiar, it's very difficult to us for us to replicate it. And so, we have to be quite creative in our thinking about what it could possibly be that's caused these uh, these issues. And I think I think that's the thing is is just being open minded. Just because we can't recreate, it, just because it doesn't understand it, I find that fascinating because that means we've then got to change things. We've mm. got to come up with how this does happen, and that leads us forward. I find it, you know, instead of just saying, you know, doing the Arnold Rimmer aliens. It, you know, uh, just actually desperately trying, you know, finding out what's causing this. I find it's, I find that more interesting than aliens. But um, yes, well, actually, on that scene, mm. on that note, hopefully, it, it leads us seamlessly into a story about hunting scene in Kashmir that's nearly six thousand, actually over six thousand years old. So it was apparently carved out in four thousand three hundred BC. And for, it, was, it was discovered decades ago, but people thought it was a hunting scene. So this is Possibly carved out on what, on stone? Or? or stone, yeah. So yeah. there's like a hunter with an arrow, a bull, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And two stars, and they believed it was the sun and the moon. And it now turns out that it, it may well have been, and then actually people started to think, well, actually, instead of it being the sun and the moon, it might be the sun and the supernova. And actually, things have progressed to... People have actually studied it more and more. And what's fascinating is they don't believe it's a hunted scene anymore. Well, it is a hunted scene, but it's actually the, the constellations of Orion. Oh, okay. And then it's actually pointing to exactly where the supernova would have gone off. And they've been able to pinpoint the supernova from this ancient drawing. And I believe it's, what's it? Oh, God, I had it. Supernova HB9, which exploded around 4,600 BC. Mm. which would tie in and it's, I just find that absolutely fascinating that an ancient civilization, ancient people will actually just carve it giving us quite detailed well for them and still for us drawings of actually these these phenomena going off I find it absolutely amazing Yes, I mean it, we, we see it now we, we call it citizen science now <laughs> Yes To help the scientists uh, interpret their scientific data and do some of the data analysis but it ever was such, you know, people have this in investigative enthusiasm and uh, just by writing it down and publishing it and, and or carving it on a wall, um, you know, all these things, it becomes uh, a legacy for others. And so there's astronomical records in the Babylonian texts, in the Egyptian texts, there's, there's lots of um, oriental histories that contain yes. all kinds of information about solar activity and aurora. 
Um, and uh, yeah, we're just starting to realise now um, that, that all these things build a picture that, that uh, maybe on their own, they're a curiosity, but if you put them in context, then this becomes a very powerful scientific story, you mm. can tell. Definitely. So, as I say, I just find that fascinating. The idea that, you know, and there, I think it was in the Chinese text that there was, there was a, there's reference to a second sun. And they believe, oh. I, I think it might have been the Crab Nebula that right, there was yes. a supernova, it was a heart of that. And they, they, they link it up. And I just think it's just phenomenal because the problem we've got, is, especially for astronomers, or, you know, if we call ourselves that, is that actually, even though. Uh, hopefully our lifetimes will be uh, nice and long and we will try and get a nice picture of what's happening in the universe or with the sun in our lifetime. That's a blink. It's a heartbeat, really. So it's nothing. So actually having these more extended kind of records looking over this where it becomes thousands of years so it actually almost becomes almost like a day in the life of the universe or of the solar system gives us a far better understanding. I just, you know, being able to delve back into these ancient records and look at them is, you know, just amazing. It just shows how these things are actually happening all the time. It's not just in our lifetime. They're, they're kind of a regular, frequent occurrence. I wanted to say goodbye to a couple of astronauts this week. Of um, course, yes. Not only um, did we lose John Young recently, um, but prior to that, Bruce McCandless died. Um, and really? Bruce McCandless... Uh, was the first person to fly untethered in space. There's some very iconic images of him in his in his large uh, sort of extra vehicular backpack, and he was he, he launched himself from the the space shuttle. It makes it sound like he shot off at a great speed, but he gradually <laughs> drifted away, but to a significant distance. And this was somebody on his own floating in space, not attached to anything, and then was able to manoeuvre himself back. It was such an iconic moment, and. I'm not sure that's ever been done since. I've not seen anything done since. I guess you'd need a reason to do it, but just just to have the the, the yeah the the bravery to do that because you are just untethering yourself from everything. Um, and it, and it, it's not like as you say, it, it's not like really you've got anywhere to go. You've got one shot to get back, and if you miss <laughs> that, that's it really. I, 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 as you say, and also with John Young, who sadly passed away, the courage of these people to actually do that, to actually be the first and just rely on this technology that hasn't been used in those situations before. And you're you're kind of putting your faith in your colleagues and people you don't know that this is all going to work and go to plan. It, you know, incredibly, incredibly brave of these people. Actually, on, well, I was going to say, prior to that, I mean, I, I <coughs> then read uh, Bruce McCandless's obituaries and you know, I knew him from this untethered space flight, but he evidently had been working uh, uh, in the astronaut program for many years and he was indeed uh, one of the um, the people working in the ground control uh, during the Apollo mission. Um, wow. I think even is the person that was you can hear speaking to Neil Armstrong when he landed on the moon. Wow. Yes, yes. And the quote, uh, quote when he drifted away, he said, it might have been a small step for Neil, but it's a heck of a big leap for me. <laughs> anyway, yes, we, we, should, we should get on to, to, to John Young, um, because he died uh, aged 87. And I, again, I, I hadn't realised just the length of his career. So mm. he flew on Gemini. He, he flew to the moon twice and walked on the moon once. And then he flew the space first space shuttle, um, commanded the first space shuttle. Yeah. Uh, 
what an era to have lived through from, from the very first Gemini launches through to um, the, yeah, the sort of iconic 1980s space shuttle. Yeah, he was one of the uh, the kind of... I suppose for many astronauts, you, you look at Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, I don't know if, as much as they were the first, I don't know if they suffered from it, that they were so kind of iconic that they were never really allowed off off planet again. The same with um, Yuri Gagarin. Yeah. They they were never kind of allowed off planet again. You've got this wonderful experience. They developed all this knowledge of being in space, and then they were kind of almost. And that sounds cheesy, but held prisoner here because they were the first, and you know it was too valuable almost to human beings to lose, or to NASA, or to the Russian space program. Whereas, yeah, John Young. Oh, well, I say many people may not know his name because everybody remembers the first two, and possibly Eugene Cernan, mm. and I think it was Harrison Smith being the last two. He kind of got lost, and actually, in a peculiar way, I wonder if that was to his benefit. That actually, then he was allowed to continue and have this wonderful career oh. of being, you know, a, a, such a long-spanned um, astronaut. Yes, his uh, the obituary on the BBC uh, quotes his achievements, and then says, "I don't know if this is what he would really want to be remembered for." He also once famously smuggled a corned beef sandwich onto a spaceflight oh, as a gift for a was- fellow astronaut. Was that him? I didn't realise that was him. That was for um, oh, Gus Grisham. Yes. And they yes. after that they were yeah because Gus Grisham hated the food and after that they were they were patted down before every mission. I didn't know that was because of him. But yeah, after that they were patted down because uh, apparently they're worried about the crumbs getting into the um, equipment up there, which you can probably have. You don't want like a loose pickle. Flying around, getting in and destroying, the, which you can. I suppose actually, it'd be incredibly frustrating if you have built this piece of tech and someone bings out a, a corned beef sandwich halfway through. But um, well, I didn't. Sorry, I shouldn't be so excited after all these numerous uh, achievements that he was the corned beef man. But congratulations to him. Ah, uh, dear, indeed. Right, what else should we talk about? Well, I think, uh, as I say, to keep it to end, war if I on a, or end my contribution on a, on a downer I look at a bomb cyclone that was in uh, that hit North America over mm. the you know the new year which oh, the, the pictures on the news were well it sounds strange me saying this were amazing I thought from a science point of view I was talking to some of my colleagues who are atmospheric physicists and texting them saying are you watching this it was unbelievable obviously if you're living through it the amount of snowfall to cold it's probably not that fun, but from a kind of environmental, from a physics, from an atmospheric physics point of view, it was, it was fascinating. And then, um, because you don't really ever put cyclones together with extreme cold like this, with extreme snowfall. But mm. unfortunately, with climate change, with the oceans heating up, it, it, it looks like this is going to become a more regular occurrence. Again, it was predicted, and, and in a perverse way, it's actually interesting to see these predictions coming true because it, we know that the maths, the physics we're using is correct. I know yeah. that sounds very... It, it, that it, It's not a great thing to say. Oh, and it's not in a told-you-so way, but the physics is right. Yeah. It, that's what's kind of actually interesting. We, You know, these things are predictable. They were modelled, and they're coming true. So from a weird point of view, great. We, we know the models work, but actually if you're involved in one of these, not particularly fun. It was during the eclipse over the US that I think there were a lot of people were tweeting the same 
same experts that predicting the, the eclipse to happen is exactly as it did. <laughs> or the same experts telling you climate change is real. Yeah. And, and you know, that's not obviously quite tr the, the truth. It's unlikely to be the same person, but it is. Person, yeah. you know, it's the same. You know, you can't, you can't accept experts on one level and not on another. Um, and, Unfortunately. You know, if, you, if you're not going to accept experts, then turn your phone off, put it away, don't listen to um, podcasts, don't. Don't watch the telly. Don't have a refrigerator. Don't have a yeah. washing machine. Don't have anything that um, uh, contributes to your modern life because these are all, uh, uh, yeah, brought to you courtesy of experts. And it's just the blunt science. There's nothing really much you can do about it. It's not personal. Mm. It's actually the way I see it. It's just what I know. It sounds peculiar. The numbers tell you. Mm. I'd never come in with any particular axe to grind. It's just that the numbers stare you in the face. You make a graph. <laughs> And then you just look at it and just go, oh, what does that mean? And I think that's where we are, really. But And the interesting thing is, is that I think it's around 18 degrees. Once the ocean gets to around 18 degrees for a sustained period, that's when you can get these cyclonic events. And unfortunately, mm. with so um, what you're seeing is you'll see more intense storms because the, the ocean is getting hotter and can sustain and feed these storms for longer. But where the oceans are getting hotter, they're actually, obviously, it's where the ocean be, can be 18 degrees is moving. Mm. And you get, in, especially where, and I think these bombs are caused because you're getting cold air drawn in from the poles, drawn into these storms, and that's how you get these sudden snowfall, which, um, you know, living in Northern Europe isn't, particularly exciting we've had a couple near misses i think we've had you know quite strong storms in the uk and it, it's just because of this so you know worrying as it is it is kind of fascinating to see that these things are playing out you know the the, the, the physics is correct and it can be modeled wow well from the macro scale to the micro scale i i, I wanted to just point to a story again i just what the people are doing that so they've um, some scientists have been dissolving rock fossil bearing rock in order to uh, preserve and look at the, the sort of specks of dust that have been preserved inside this is scientists in germany and they found scales from the from the wings of a butterfly um, really? and that's enabled them to push back the evolution of moths and butterflies to at least 200 million years ago and that's about 70 million years earlier than they thought had previously been wow found. but these are the size of the of specks of dust um and uh yeah look again on the bbc website they used acid to dissolve ancient rocks leaving behind small fragments including perfectly preserved scales that covered the wings of early moths and butterflies this is Dr. Bas van der Schutbrugge uh, from Utrecht University <laughs> in the Netherlands. I've probably mangled. I was about to say you've terribly. got the names today. Um, and we found the microscopic remains of these organisms in the form of these scales, uh, and they show um, that some of the moths and butterflies belong to a group that are still alive today. And because wow. they know that, they've got they know that these butterflies had long straw-like tongues for sucking up nectar. So. Know, to tell you something about the, the, the flowers etc that must have been around of course yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, our finds show that the group was supposed to co-evolve with flowers is actually much older uh, the Jurassic world was dominated by uh, gymnosperm plants I probably pronounced that badly as well <laughs> such as conifers <clears throat> so, that, so they've got nectar um, uh, and they use that nectar to capture pollen from the air. And so 
these primitive insects may have fed upon the nectar, and that so they evolved before flowering plants came along to sort of draw them away and do other things. So, which is again a really interesting insight into, uh, yeah, what what drove evolution for these species, what came first, and um, yeah, the fact that di- the butterflies were actually around a good. Uh, 70 million years before we thought they were is just mind-boggling but to, to find that out through dissolving rock and looking at the dust that's left behind oh. <laughs> it's amazing that it's 200 million years old that it's still there it's yeah. just uh, yeah it's just as you say mind-boggling and it, it is peculiar just to throw around numbers like 70 million years 200 million years and things like that it's just it's just amazing that you know, we we get we're narrowing down the window of these things. It's you know unbelievable. Well, my mind has been boggled once again. <laughs> great I'm glad you ended on on a, on a high note of butterflies and kittens rather than cyclone <laughs> bombs. It's, it's the closest I could find to a kitten to a kitten playing with a printer. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Good to speak with you. Cheers, Ivan. You too. Bye. You have been listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science with Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Tweet us at SL Science.